0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. I'm Chance Ritchie and this is the Business Hour. We have a great show for you today. We will, of course, be talking about COVID-19 and the response to the crisis. And later in the show, we'll talk more about how small businesses can survive and thrive during this time. We also have a couple of great guests for you today. Uh, Jack Christides will discuss uh, how the COVID-19 crisis has affected major and college sports from an economic perspective. And then we'll have John Neary on to discuss his thoughts on the government's response to coronavirus. But first, our top stories from the week. Um, A few good stories out there. Uh, Number one, uh, jobless claims were up 4.4 million for a total of 26 million claims in the past six weeks. Uh, That represents about 16% of the labor force being out of work. Now, the silver lining in that is that claims were only up $4.4 this past week, so it seems that the rate of folks applying for jobless claims is coming down somewhat. Also, oil prices have stabilized with the June West Texas Intermediate Futures contract currently trading at $17 a barrel, some of you may remember that the May uh, contract closed at uh, a negative number for the month. So that was, uh, it's good to see that oil prices have stabilized a bit, good for the general economy. And then another $484 billion of stimulus has been approved by the government with an additional $322 billion earmarked for the Paycheck Protection Program, $75 billion for hospitals, and $25 billion for additional coronavirus testing. So, without further ado, we'll get to our first guest today, Jack Christides. Jack studied sports management at the University of Michigan and has worked for the San Diego Chargers previously. Welcome to the show, Jack.
2: Thanks, Chance. Pleasure to be here. So, you know, uh,
1: I know you have your own show on America's Web Radio starting next week covering the business of sports. Um, you know, just tell us a little bit about what the show will be centered around and what some example topics uh, you have that will be discussed that are maybe different than the typical sports radio shows people are listening to.
2: Yeah, so I'm uh, extremely excited to pre- be premiering my new show next week called Billion Dollar Um and I'm happy you mentioned that it's a little unorthodox for a sports show because um, A lot of the sports shows out there come from kind of a fan's perspective, uh, which is great. Everyone loves sports, and everyone wants to talk about what's going on, but in light of the recent COVID pandemic that's going on right now, um, we're going to be taking a little bit alternative of approach. Uh, We're going to be discussing some of the economic impacts of that a little bit in the upcoming first show, and uh, moving on, it's really going to be about the inside business of sports, Um, so... With the NFL draft going on, I know people are always hearing in the NFL's business. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about what that actually means and how dollar signs actually drive all the major and college sports in America. So uh, for some example topics that are going to be discussed just this first week, we're going to talk about the NCAA and all the Division One athletic departments and uh, just how this pandemic right now is affecting not only them in the short term, but also them in the long term. Um, and then we're also going to discuss the recent NFL CBA agreement and how that is going to affect the way that we view our sports as fans.
1: Well, that, that's great. And I don't want you to give the first show away, but you know, just just talk to our listeners a little bit at a high level on how the coronavirus crisis is going to affect the business of sports, and will there be long-lasting effects? From the time lost to the virus?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question and there's obviously a lot to unpack and we'll go more into detail next Friday. Um, but just on surface value, um, this pandemic is having a huge effect on sports as we know. There's the obvious face value stuff of the non gathering. We saw the NFL draft last night of course, happening virtually, no stage walks, no shaking hands with the commissioner, so That's definitely going to take some time to get used to. The NBA season's paused. We don't know uh, when the NFL's returning. NCAA sports in the spring all got canceled this year. So it's definitely an interesting time. Um, But a lot of what people might not necessarily be noticing right now, and it's understandable because it's not the most visible or talked-about topic at the moment, is uh, the underlying effects that this is going to have on sports and the long-term things that could happen. So, for example, um, and again, I don't want to give away too much of the first show, but just taking a look at the NCAA and how those sports operate from a fiscal standpoint, um, what a lot of people don't know is that college athletic departments are typically uh, revenue-funded, and uh, that revenue, the vast majority of it is coming from their football and their basketball programs, Um, in some cases up to 80%, 90% um, in extreme. So uh, when we're talking about the potential cancellation of the D1 football season um, for this upcoming fall, um, that could have widespread effects across all the different sports, even well into the spring. Um, So while you may be a a Duke basketball fan um, or a Duke football fan, um, you may think, oh, it's okay, Uh, we won't have our football season, but then I'll get to watch uh, the lacrosse season in the fall and see those boys And those gals play a great season. Well, if if all these football seasons don't happen, that's going to dent the revenue on all these athletic departments. And it could have effects on those spring sports as well. So even though teams might not be able to play just because of the social gathering aspects and the problems COVID causes there, there's potential for economic fallout leading to delays in sports for, in my estimations, up to at least a whole year.
3: Jack,
0: could I wow, ask? Wow, that's, uh, uh,
1: that's pretty significant. So I think what you're saying is that if football were to be canceled or they weren't able to have fans, obviously they would still have the TV revenue in that in that circumstance where they play games without fans. But that could have a ripple effect that could ultimately cause the cancellation of other sports in the spring and beyond. Once presumably the COVID nineteen crisis has passed.
2: Yeah, of course, and and every I mean everybody wants to watch these sports. It's it's of course upsetting that they may not be happening in the first place, but um, colleges just simply can't afford to put on these sports if if they're not getting the revenue, the TV revenue, the the ticket revenue that they'd be getting from these college football programs uh, if the season has to be canceled because of uh, the coronavirus. Um, so it's obviously a, a developing story um, because we don't know for sure what's going to happen, but we've already seen some fallout, actually. Um, Just this past week, uh, we saw that the University of Cincinnati canceled its soccer season, uh, which certainly wasn't expected. Um, We would have assumed that by the time that season would have happened, the social distancing guidelines would have been over and everything would have been okay. But um, things like that do happen when you have schools like that that are significantly
3: funded by their football team. Jack, uh, Jack, you and, uh, and Chance, I want to ask both of you the same question. Uh, and either one can answer or both can answer. With the bailouts that uh, are now available, will the, will the uh, pro football teams and our basketball teams and our baseball teams be eligible for any of the PPP money that uh, to go to pay the salaries of 30, 40, 100 million dollar players?
1: Well, I'll I'll take that one. And and the the short answer, David, is I think um, at the surface level, they would be eligible if you read the details of the payroll protection, the paycheck protection program. But from, you know, a public relations perspective, I doubt that there's any NBA owners that would would pursue those. We've already seen backlash uh, from certain companies you know accepting funds under the paycheck protection program uh most notably uh you've had uh, shake shack that has uh you know they said they're not taking the money you've had people take the money give the money back so there are examples out there uh, i think guidance just came out um where the treasury department asked for the money back from publicly traded companies uh, because they felt like that was you know it was Uh, it wasn't the responsibility of the American taxpayer to fund payrolls for publicly traded companies. So you're already seeing some things like that happen, and they're really narrowing the focus of the Paycheck Protection Program to, you know, privately held small businesses, which was the original intent of the program.
2: Yeah, and and just to add on to that a little bit, Chance, I think getting back to the sport aspect a little bit, um, I've been getting this question a lot. You know, people saying, are these billion, billionaire owners going to be paying um, their millionaire players? It's an in- interesting question to look at, but when we focus into the NBA and specifically, um, we have already seen just in the past week the NBA had a 25% salary cut um, for all of their players for the remainder of the season, and obviously we don't know if that season's actually going to occur or not. Um, but that itself has had a lot of backlash. So it'll be interesting to see for sure the fan reaction as sports tries to adapt to this situation in a very visible market for them.
1: Yeah, and I think there'll be ripple effects in endorsements. I mean, obviously, if you don't have the players on the court, the players aren't as recognizable to the fans and they're not as marketable from an endorsement standpoint. So, you know, we'll see what happens, but, You know, the longer this drags on, the worse it is for professional and college sports, I I can tell you that. Certainly. Well, Jack, hey, thanks for being on the show. Um, Really looking forward to your show starting next week. Once again, Jack Christides, his show is Billion Dollar Ballers, where we'll be talking about the business of sports, uh, which is a really interesting topic. And I know there's a lot to unpack there. So we'll see you next week, Jack.
2: Thanks, Chance. This was great. I look forward to next week, guys. All right. Well, our next
1: guest, uh, and, and David, is it time to go to a break before we introduce our next guest?
3: Uh, we can do that if you'd like to. We can uh, take a take a quick break and come back. And uh, by the way, Jack was uh, fantastic. Looking forward to him um, as well being part of the. Uh, america's web radio family and i think his show is going to be just something extraordinary i i haven't found one like it on any other station and uh, i think everybody's going to be very proud of jack so we'll be back with the business hour right after this
0: the disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
3: And welcome back to America's Web Radio. We're glad to have you listening in today. And uh, we've got uh, the business hour in progress with Chance Ritchie, and he's got his second guest with him. So, Chance, back to you.
1: Thanks, David. Our next guest is John Neary. John immigrated to the United States from Ireland almost 20 years ago now and, and has done extremely well. John was previously the chief information officer for a multibillion-dollar large publicly traded finance company and was most recently the chief executive officer of a national vehicle dealership network. Welcome to the
4: show, John. Thanks for having me, Chance. I'm uh, very pleased to be here. So, So, John,
1: you know, uh, we have a lot to go through today uh, but you know I'd like for you to give the listeners a little background on your journey from Irish immigrant to c-suite executive for a multi-billion dollar corporation and then I'd like to get into you know right workplace and right workplace is an awesome concept and business that you founded that helps companies develop their culture in what I
4: think is a very simple and effective way Thanks John. So, yeah, yeah, I've been in the U.S. since 2001. Uh, my background was in IT, so uh, growing up in Ireland and into university, I was very interested in computer science. Uh, studied computer science at Trinity College in Dublin and uh, worked a full-time job while I was at university to, to pay for it. So I was working, you know, 40-hour week and uh, then going to Trinity um, for evening classes to complete my degree. Um, Moved to uh, Belgium after graduation. Uh, Worked in Antwerp for a couple of years as a programmer, working on old uh, mainframe systems. And um, I was actually doing a lot of contract work for General Motors Europe. And that's ultimately what brought me to Detroit and and, and Michigan here. Um, uh, General Motors in Detroit had a need for mainframe programmers. It's a pretty specialized skill um, now and it was um, just as much so then. Uh, so I managed to come over on a, on a specialized visa and, um, you know, got my start as a programmer um, with what was then um, electronic data systems, EDS, and uh, worked as a programmer there for um, a number of years. Um, after a few years, um, in the early 2000s, there was a trend to kind of outsource a lot of IT work, a lot of programming work. So at the time, I felt I needed to kind of adjust um, if I was going to make it in the, in the U.S., I saw more and more uh, contracts being fulfilled with overseas labor. So here I am, an immigrant in the U.S., I come over here, and now the work's going somewhere else. So I thought, well, you know, I've got to adjust. So I started to study um, you know, disciplines like project management, business analysis, and more general you know, business practices, and ultimately um, landed a job with a finance company that was focused on IT. Um, but it was more on the project management side. So it was a little bit less technical, uh, more interfacing with customers in the business. Um, so that was kind of a, you know, an, an early career transition. And from there, I just, you know, part luck, part hard work, and uh, a lot being surrounded by really good people, but managed to work my way up. And um, from starting as a pretty junior business analyst, um, I finished my tenure at that company as their chief information officer. Uh, which is something I was very proud of and I I, I really enjoyed. Um, For various reasons, I I wanted to try a different challenge. Um, I was pretty young, and that was, in my opinion at the time, as far as I could really go in that organization. So uh, like a lot of people, you look for, you know, what's your next challenge? What can you do? So um, after about 10 years there, um, I joined a um, small dealership group and uh, as their CEO, helped to build that up into a uh, much more, um, recognizable network um, with, with over 25 uh, locations. And I did that for five years and had a lot of fun doing it. And then, you know, once again, came time for a change. Um, at that point, it's it's when I decided, okay, well, you know, what are the common threads between these experiences that I really enjoyed? And the thing I enjoyed the most was um, leading teams of people and uh, helping those people feel engaged and, and um, um, you know, happy in their in, in their work and motivated in the work in the way that I was, and it's that experience that um, brought me to um, create uh, Right Workplace, which is really a, a company that's focused on uh, helping businesses of all sizes uh, build a really uh, positive, engaging, entrepreneurial, uh, go getter type culture. And that that's a that's you know that's a tech company in and of itself because
1: the interface is entirely online. Um, and, you know, we've tried it at our company, and it works great. It's fantastic. Um, it's it's very deep without being a huge burden to your employees, which is we found to be awesome. Uh, just tell us a little bit more about how Right Workplace works.
4: Sure. So um, I, I suppose a little bit of background. I mean, a lot of people will have heard of companies who pursue workplace awards of different kinds. A lot of times workplace awards are tied to publications, which is – uh, problematic in a, in, a, in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, um, many of them have um, an enormous amount of questions that employees have to fill out. So you've got 50 plus questions, and so it's an intimidating survey. Um, they're administered usually on an annual basis because they're tied to a publication. Uh, so for example, you might take a survey in July, uh, results might be available in November, and then a publication or a magazine that shares those results is available in January. So the time between a, an employee giving their feedback and actually getting the results and seeing what leadership's going to do about them, it, it can be months. Um, and the actual data that you collect from those surveys can be pretty, um, uh, pretty daunting to mine as well and, and derive meaningful action from. So what we did with Right Workplace is said, okay, well, you know, there can't be 50 things that decide whether a person is really in um, the right workplace for them. There's got to be a smaller number of things that really matter. And then by the same token for um, business owners, um, business owners who are competing in these kind of competition surveys for top workplaces, a lot of times the publications that share the results, they want to emphasize, um, you know, marketable stories. So companies that have got free lunches or on-site massages, you know, crazy perks that make for good reading and good highlights uh, but they're not, they're not consistent with um, normal business practices. Uh, they're not consistent with um, businesses that just don't have the kind of resources to spend on those benefits. And frankly, um, they're not the things that I found matter to people um, at work. Uh, you can have all the perks uh, you like at a workplace, but people will really um, tell you whether they love or hate their job uh, based on the relationships they have um, at their workplace. So what Right Workplace does is it says, okay, uh, let's take a small number of things that matter, and there are three things. There's first of all, do you trust and respect your leader? Second of all, do you work in an environment where you feel your coworkers want you to succeed? And third of all, uh, do you feel that your voice matters? So none of those things have anything to do with exciting perks, um, but they have everything to do with whether um, someone is, is, is really happy and engaged at work. So, we just measure those three things through a confidential and secure survey. It's done through our uh, software platform that we developed. Uh, the results are immediate, and the process itself um, is very, very simple for small businesses to um, uh, participate in and for employees to in- in- engage in. And instead of a competition where it's top 50 or top 100, so you're competing with everybody, it's more like a grade. And you get a passing grade or you get a failing grade. So, you you know, just because an employer down the street is doing something a certain way doesn't make you any better or, or worse as a leader or an employee, in, employer in your uh, specific business. So really we focus on a small number of things that matter, uh, deliver um, almost immediate results, and give uh, business owners uh, a more meaningful and actionable uh, platform to, to keep um you know, keep the finger on the pulse of their their culture. Yeah,
1: and the the two things we really found interesting about it was I did not expect people to be as open as they were in their feedback uh, with our company. And because of the way you've made the user experience, I think it really fosters this trust in the process, and you get people's true feelings, which um, was very, very helpful to our company whenever we used Right Workplace. And, and I've got to think that given the effects of, of COVID-19 and folks having to work from home, companies are even more concerned now about their culture and maintaining that culture while you don't have people gathering in an office. And I do think Right Workplace could go a long way towards um, you know helping companies uh, determine what their culture looks like and then maintaining that culture even... You know, given stay-at-home orders.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's a, obviously a, a crazy time right now with everything that's going on. But that's some of the feedback that we've been receiving too. That it is, it is really a good time to have a tool that um, allows people to continue to measure their culture and uh, get feedback in a, in a you know in a pretty pretty timely manner. So, so you know.
1: Getting back to coronavirus a little bit, and I think you're seeing this, you know, in talking to the businesses you work with, um, you know, what do you think about the federal and state government response to coronavirus? And do you think there will be long-lasting effects to the economy? We've seen the short-term effects. Unemployment in Michigan is about 17%. You have 26 million people out of work out of a 164 million-person workforce. Do you think these are short-term effects, and and what do you think the response has been from the government?
4: You know, I I think it's an extraordinarily difficult situation for anyone, and there have been plenty of um, examples of decisions at the state level that I personally felt were, you know, maybe the the wrong decisions are not balanced decisions. Um, But what I do think uh, right now is, um, you know, a great example of of, of seeing, you know, Americans act in a way that uh, they they try to really put – Um, everybody's interests um, um, or protect everybody's interests as best they can. So I might not agree with everything our own governor um, is doing here in Michigan, um, but I do, um, you know, have faith in the intentions uh, that they're trying to protect people and trying to, um, you know, keep people safe at a a very difficult time. Um, You know, at, at, at the federal level, um, I think they're communicating, uh, you know, excessively, which is, is appropriate uh, for what we're going through, and uh, trying to reassure people daily that, um, you know, they're 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 doing their absolute best to make this thing um, be as painless as possible. So, I mean, I can pick examples of things that I, you know, I disagree with or have problems with, um, but ultimately, I trust the intentions of, of uh, you know the leaders we have, and I hope this, this phase ends pretty quickly.
1: Well, well, I would say you have way more faith than me. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at some statistics on Michigan in particular and, and the executive orders that Governor Whitmer has put in place. So if you look at a graph of, of coronavirus case density versus the number of unemployment applications in any given state, New York, which everybody knows has had more coronavirus cases than any state by far, is only sitting at about, you know, 12 percent of the workforce has applied for unemployment benefits. Then you get to Michigan, and it's the eighth uh, highest uh, coronavirus density of all the states out there. And it's at 20, uh, you know, it's at 17% or 20%, depending on what you look at. And it's the second highest behind Hawaii. And I think the reason Hawaii is the highest is because you really can't travel there and stay in a hotel. So, um, you know, I think, The response by the governor with Executive Order 21, which was uh, superseded by Executive Order 42, which has some fairly draconian restrictions on personal liberty and movement, um, has led to a disproportionate uh, outcome with unemployment relative to the number of cases we have in the state. And I do think there's going to be long-term uh, effects to the Michigan economy, the, you know, the, the manufacturing base here is not something you can just turn on and off that quickly. Um, and I think that you're going to see the automakers, uh, the auto suppliers have, you know, longer-term issues that will take two, three, four, five years to work themselves back out. We've already seen the UAW is not going to go back to work in the beginning of May, even if the uh, restrictions are relaxed. So that's a little disheartening. But you know, my take on it is we need to get this economy jump started. We need to let people use common sense with respect to social distancing and gathering and we all need to get back to work.
4: Don't think there's anyone who'll disagree with that. We gotta get things moving as as, as quickly and as safely as we can.
2: And and and,
4: uh, and, you know, my take on it is that that a lot of these orders I mean you can be on a you can be on
1: a lake but you can't on your in your canoe but you can't be in a powered boat. I mean that to me sort of smells of some agenda, some environmental agenda that, uh, you know, Governor Whitmer is probably trying to use these powers as a way to get a vice presidential nomination, to expand her base to more progressive voters, Um, who knows, but uh, a lot of it just doesn't make sense, and you're seeing the mismanagement of the crisis in Michigan, in particular, bear itself out in the unemployment numbers and so, chance uh, uh, chance with that we've
3: week. got to uh take our next break so we'll be back with the business hour and chance Ritchie and his very interesting guest we'll be back after this
0: the disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp chance,
3: this is very good
0: what should be the course of treatment and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome to America's Web Radio. I'm Chance Ritchie. This is the Business Hour. We're going to continue with our guest today, John Neary. Uh, We introduced John last segment. John has a very interesting background, immigrated to the United States about 20 years ago, Um, attained a great deal of success In this country. And and maybe we could talk about immigration uh, for just a just a second. You know, President Trump last week instituted orders limiting immigration for the next 60 days. Um, You know, how do you feel about, you know, President Trump order in particular, and then the immigration topic as it stands today? I know some people are kind of on the side of, hey, we need as many folks immigrating in as possible. We're not really concerned about whether they've gone through all the proper uh, processes. Uh, Where do you stand on that, given that you have gone through uh, the proper immigration channels?
4: So, I mean, just the first part of your question, you know, what do I think of his his restrictions today? So I I view them as less of a – restriction on immigration as just a, a, a practical restriction on, on, on travel into the country. Um, not a total restriction, but a practical um, limitation of travel given the environment we're in. Now, I, I view that as, as, as practical. I think it's, um, you know, not surprisingly being uh, labeled as, as motivated by something else in, in, in the media, but I just view it as, you know, he's doing what he can to protect the American people from this thing, um, this current COVID situation being worse worse than it is. So I don't see it as any, any more than that. Um, immigration in general, I can speak to my own experience, which was, um, you know, it started with, Really, being educated in a specialized uh, discipline in, in computer science and, and developing a skill set um, that I was able to use in Ireland, where I worked first, in Belgium, where I worked second, and then ultimately it was a skill that I apparently had value in the U.S. So um, through a supplier of, of, of General Motors, and that's how I secured my first, um, you know, real real job um, in the U.S. So I had that job offer uh, before I left uh, Belgium uh, to go into the U.S and the visa was a specialized work visa um, that I qualified for at that time. Um, so, you know, going back 20 years, I felt very fortunate to be able to come over and get some experience in the U.S. I thought at that time it might be a, you know, two, three-year uh, engagement. I'd have some great experience on my resume. i go back to uh, Europe, probably to Ireland, and continue my career, and I'd have experience which um, is, is, is pretty valued in those markets, which is experience working for an American corporation um, state So um, I do get frustrated at times when, um, you know, having experienced the kind of the lengthy processes that you have to go through um, subsequent to get, um, you know, different visa types. So you can come over on a certain type of visa and then to stay, there's a renewal process, um, and there's, you know, there's different type of visas, there's your green card process, and there's ultimately the citizenship process. Um, all in all, um, you know, it took literally years from the time that I first came to the U.S. illegally, um, the time that I became a citizen, and I was extremely proud to attain citizenship and, and ultimately settle here and build, build my life here. Um, so my view on, on immigration is there's, you know, there is a path for people who want to do it the right way. Um, I understand that sometimes people either don't have the means or the patience to follow that path, um, but it's there for a reason. So, I mean, I think all countries, um, including Ireland, actually—they, you know—they have standardized processes to manage the ebb and flow of, of people and talent into their country. Um, but my view on what what I see Trump trying to do is is uh, bring some, um, you know, um, stability and some 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 real process to uh, the way that system works, and to you know ensure that the U.S. has sovereignty that there's not you know this. Flow of 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 people um, without vetting for skills, without vetting for you know fit to the American economy.
1: Right. I mean, if you have a, a complete open borders policy, you don't have a country. I mean, right. and there are processes in place, and it's interesting to talk to somebody who's been through that process. I also have a couple of other Canadian friends who have been through the the citizenship process, and. and and, and frankly, you know, I, I think it's, it's not so much – a I d- definitely don't have a problem with folks immigrating into the country. I have a problem with folks trying to shortcut the process. And, and I think that's the biggest issue that people have is uh, folks trying to undermine the laws that are already out there. So, you know, and I, I do think that President Trump made the point this week that the 60-day moratorium on immigration was also about – not giving out those work visas so that Americans had preferential access to those jobs, you know, while unemployment's at 16% or, or whatever the latest number is. So, um, you know, I, th- I do think it's driven a little bit by getting Americans back to work preferentially, but long-term, you know, obviously immigration, immigration of talent into the country is is very, very important. Um Last segment, we had touched on your business, Right Workplace, and how it's helping companies during the COVID-19 crisis to maintain this culture even when folks, uh, you know, can't, can't be together. You know, how are you personally adjusting to this new environment uh, with COVID-19, and do you think um, Governor Whitmer is going to extend the stay-at-home orders here in Michigan?
4: So the state, the last I heard of the stay at home order, she was adding two weeks and extending it to um, uh, to mid May. So are you asking, you know, beyond that date or?
1: Yeah. Do you do you think you know? I'm hearing I'm in Memorial Day. I'm hearing into June.
4: Yeah.
1: And I just think there'll be a catastrophic effect on the Michigan economy and the the U.S. economy if we don't start getting some folks back to work. I mean, I'm already seeing Georgia's, Georgia's moving in the direction to, to ease the restrictions. Yeah. I was in Texas for six weeks up until Tuesday and, you know, things have barely changed. You can't go to restaurants. uh, You can't gather in large groups, but by and large, you can still go to the store. You can still do all your outdoor activities. It's not that much of a change. I didn't really notice it until I got to Michigan on Tuesday. And I mean, it is, it is, it's, it's
4: a drastic change to your lifestyle here. No, it's it's, it's, it's dramatic. I mean, we're effectively in a, in a holding pattern. Everyone's in a holding pattern. And I think a lot of people are, are, are fearful and trying to uh, figure out how to make ends meet and, and how to uh, support themselves financially until this thing ends. So um, I hope it ends when um, it's scheduled to. Um, and more importantly, I, I hope there's good reason for it to end when it's scheduled to. And all the data suggests that things have has, has stabilized that we can we can get back to work. Now, um, going back to some of the information you you cited earlier, I do think that there's um, some middle ground. You talked about the economy as being a you know treated like a, a switch. You can't just turn the you know hit the off switch um, on an economy like the one we have in Michigan. Um, I've heard other states refer to it as a dimmer switch, where they can um, limit um, uh, business activities that require a lot of interpersonal act, uh, um, interactions. Um, try to um, accommodate businesses that can operate safely and for businesses that um, do traditionally require a lot of interpersonal activity, have some alternate uh, business model with more curbside delivery um, or online ordering, uh, things like that. So I hope it ends when it does. If it doesn't, I hope uh, the measures are a little bit more balanced and uh, maybe in line with other states where they open it up somewhat Um, so we try to keep, um, you know, as many jobs as we possibly can during this time.
1: Yeah, I think to put a fine point on it, I, I think technically we're outside of the we're outside of the executive order just by doing this radio show and the two of us getting together to do this. So I hope um, the police don't storm in here and give us our give us our tickets any any minute now because uh, you know you're not even supposed to gather with close friends and groups of two, which is, to me just seems egregious. But uh, enough about that. Um, you know. John, super excited about Right Workplace. Uh, you can find it at rightworkplace.com. If you, and it's good for businesses. We used it for our business, which has 25 employees up to businesses of, of any size. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, and uh, I feel like you're going to have great results. Um, you know, for, for our next our next topic. I'd like to really get you know talk a little bit about the stock market and, and the effect on the broader economy. And to me, there seems to be a real disconnect. We saw the the stock market start to recover this week. I think it hit a low of around you know eighteen thousand something like that. Whenever the Dow Jones Industrial uh, back in March, and it's climbed back to about twenty three thousand and change. Um, you know, I don't really under you, I know you that you do a lot in the stock market. I don't really understand how the economic fundamentals are going to be there to support a stock market recovery.
4: Uh, the, short answer, the short answer to that is neither do I, and I think over the next uh, couple of quarters we're going to see some uh, brutal earnings announcements where people are going to have to reconcile the valuations that you're seeing in the market with earnings results that just aren't going to support them.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and, and you know, I, th- I personally thought 18,000 18, back in March was going to be from – a high of, of close to 30,000 was going to be the tip of the iceberg. I mean, equity, you know, the the stock market is based on equity values. Yeah. And as heavily debt-laden as some of these companies are, you know, I looked for equity values to go to zero in some cases. So, to me, that the bottom was 18,000 was, you know, that's that is an indication of how much faith people have in the government and the system, the federal government in particular, to do what's necessary. To get the stock market and get the economy back on track.
4: Yeah, we're we're, we're aligned on that. I'm I'm, I'm pretty um, you know bearish on on, on on things right now too, and I don't think we're um, personally. I don't think we're at we're at the bottom at all, or even close to it.
1: Yeah, no. I yeah. think uh, you know we got a, we got a small blip up here. You know, at twenty three thousand. I'm not. A, I'm certainly not a prognosticator of the stock market, but I know that personally, I would be hesitant to invest at, at these levels, um, especially, you know, some companies, uh, you know, I, I just don't think they've felt the pain yet, and I think the pain, like you said, is going to come in second quarter, third quarter results. So, David, with that, we'll take a break, and we, we could come back with our fourth segment.
3: Alrighty, righty, and uh, when we come back, I, I would like to ask uh, you all, if you think about it before we come back, uh, is I – support what Trump did yesterday as far as uh, talking to uh, Iran rather stoutly and saying you know you mess with us and uh, you're going to lose a boat so what effect would more problems in the uh, Middle East cause we'll be back right after this And I want to remind everybody that uh, before we get back with uh, the business hour, is following the business hour will be uh, our master's message, our Kung Fu message. And uh, we'll all, as always, we'll start it off with a um, brief bit of meditation. So stay tuned for that. Right now, you're listening to America's Web Radio. And uh, we'll bring you right back into... uh, the Business Hour with Chance Ritchie.
1: Well, thanks, David. And David, I think before the break, you, you had a question on President Trump's response to Iran.
3: Yeah. Uh, you know, yesterday he uh, basically gave the Navy uh, the trigger power. They mess with you, blow them out of the water.
1: So, so you know, having been in the Navy... Uh, for 14 years uh, previously, and during the time of uh, Operation Southern Watch, you know we we ran a lot of exercises in the Persian Gulf. You know, I can tell you that that those threats always exist. It's nothing new, um, and it's good to see a president step up and give Navy commanders the ability to make a real time decision <coughs> about about the threat and and the response to that threat. You know. I know that in the past, with previous administrations, um, you know, the military has been handcuffed with their response, and um, you know, it is, it's definitely led to an ineffectiveness on some level with our military. So good to see that the president is, is sort of decentralizing that authority and, and giving the commanders on the ground and in the ships um, the ability to respond to those threats. But you know, I think you had asked me the question what what do i think the the broader effect on the economy would be and you know i think you're seeing it in the stabilization of oil prices anytime there's threats in the middle east um there's a threat to the disruption of oil coming from the middle east uh with something like this you see that oil prices will go up and and i think that's why we're even where we're at at seventeen dollars a barrel Right now, I mean, a a global oil demand is typically in the range of 100 million barrels per day, and we've seen a drop-off of 26 million barrels per day over the last uh, six to eight weeks since the start of the coronavirus uh, uh, crisis. So that reduction in demand, uh, coupled with an increase in supply, has put a huge strain on the storage capability of West Texas Intermediate Crude, in particular, which, you know, led to the complete capitulation of oil prices uh, earlier this month and at the end of March. So you know, this conflict with Iran, if nothing else, should help to stabilize those oil prices uh, which you know in, in in the short term is actually good for the American economy there are thousands of workers uh, particularly in in Texas North Dakota the Appalachia that depend on these oil and gas jobs so stabilizing prices stabilizing production is certainly helpful overall uh, to our broader economy
3: uh, chance how could uh, how could someone make a statement? Uh, like AOC did, that, oh, I hope that the uh, Texas oil business goes under?
1: Well, I think that comes from a very uneducated, uninformed point of view. I mean, the, look, I have, a, I have a master's degree in environmental engineering, and, and I would love it if um, you know we could move to totally renewable sources. <laughs> I think everybody would like to see that in the long run. But the reality of the situation is we're not at that point yet. We are not at the point where we can use uh, wind turbines. We can use uh, solar power to provide all of the energy f- that this country needs at this particular time. Um, you know, there's a lot of issues with those, those in particular with storage. Obviously, the sun doesn't shine at night. Uh, the wind doesn't always blow. So you have to have a way to capture that energy, and we're just not there yet with battery and storage technology for wind and solar to completely provide all the energy needed uh, for, to drive this this you know economy and, and all the, the oil, natural gas, nuclear power that's used um, in addition to wind and solar. So you know, I think if AOC got what she asked for, uh, we'd essentially be in the Stone Age, which I don't think anybody's interested
3: in. Uh, you said it very uh, profoundly. Very good. So back to you and your show and uh, your guests.
1: Yeah, so, so you know, wrapping up, um, you know, here with, with John, you know, we've gone through the, the federal government, the state's government's response uh, to COVID-19, you know, it's, it's not all bad news. We're seeing a lot of people doing a lot of good things. I think there are opportunities out there for people. Um, you know, certainly that's hard to say for people that, that have been laid off and are part of the, the 26 million folks that have sought unemployment benefits over the last six weeks. But have you seen any, any silver lining out there? Have you seen any bright
4: spots in the economy? Um, I mean, really bright spots in the economy right now are pretty hard to find. I mean, there's certainly bright spots in relationships that all of us have where, you know, it's nice to see people um, checking in um, on each other. It's nice to see people appreciating those on the front lines. It's nice to see people recognizing the value in jobs like working in grocery stores more so than ever. Um, You know, I'm a big believer in, you know, any honest work is great work, but, um, you know, how, how... Often have you heard people in, in grocery stores or other frontline services outside of the medical professional even being referred to as heroes and, and rightly so. Um, so I view that as a positive. Um, economically, I mean, it, it really is. It's it's hard to find a bright spot right now, particularly in Michigan with almost everything shut down. Uh, but I do think it's it's good for people uh, to reevaluate their business models um, because there will be a new normal um, when this is all done. Um, good for people on a personal level to re-evaluate, um, you know, their, their budgetary situation and their ability to weather um, surprises uh, like this, um, even short-lived ones, uh, to make sure they're financially positioned to weather them. And same goes for, for businesses. I'm sure you've experienced this with your business when there's a dramatic interruption into what you typically do, um, how are you positioned to weather it, and what are the things you can do to adjust?
1: And, and and I think that's a that's a great point. I mean, we are a small business, truly a small business, twenty five employees, um, a very technical business. But we've shifted our entire focus from our traditional business of specialty chemicals to making hand sanitizer, and we're giving away twenty five percent of it um, to frontline responders, hospitals, um, the United Way, in particular. But um, you know, we've we've completely sort of changed our business to hand sanitizer in a matter of three or four weeks. Um, uh, And and I think you're seeing a lot of other businesses out there respond in that way. I mean, traditionally, you know, restaurants that are, you know, uh, white tablecloth service are now moving to that, you know, carryout model. And you're seeing people adjust uh, just really in a very short period of time, which shows the resiliency of the American people, of the American economy. And like you said, I think there will be uh, long-term structural effects of, 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 you know, where companies are transitioning their business plan to something that's more sustainable in the event something like COVID-19 were to, uh, to come back again. For sure. Um, you know, one, one quick point I wanted to make, though, you mentioned hospitals. <laughs> you know, all of the, all of the restrictions on, on personal movement, on the, the governor's orders, were always predicated not on the number of people that would die in the state of Michigan and and even in other states, but it was always predicated on hospitals not having enough beds for people who were infected with coronavirus. So now I hear all of these statistics about nurses being laid off, furloughed, uh, you know, being an inordinate amount of hospital beds open, And hospitals are having a hard time staying afloat during coronavirus. So for me, there's a real disconnect between the way uh, these restrictions were sold to us and what we're seeing in reality with the effect that coronavirus is having on the finances of these hospitals.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I, my understanding of that, you know, the the whole point behind the flattening the curve is that you don't have a situation where you're, um, you know, you have more people in need of ICU beds than you have ICU beds available. So one way to look at that is, um, you know, if there's too much of a disparity and too many ICU beds available, either it's because we're doing a great job of preventing the spread of the disease or because we've overreacted. Um, I'd like to think that it's because we're doing, you know, a, a good job of, of, of containing it. Um, and, and it's not, you know, kind of an overreaction thing. That's just, just my, my, my my personal view. Um, and then separately, the, the you know, the, the closures are not the closures, rather the, the layoffs that we're hearing about in, in media now about um, hospitals locally that are laying people off. My understanding is a lot of that is tied to, um, the the stoppages that have occurred with all the other um, procedures, particularly elective procedures, were hospitals. Um, I think I imagine you know drive a lot of the revenues from, and they don't have the um, the work to support it. So it, it is a bizarre you know disconnect um, given what we're going through. And then seeing hospitals laying people off, it's hard to mentally reconcile those two. Um, and it's obviously um, unfortunate. And then you have the people. Um, who are arguably the most exposed on the front line? They are all referring to as heroes, and then you pick up the paper and see, oh boy, their, their jobs are at risk as well. Uh, it does seem, it does seem really, really difficult to reconcile that.
1: Well, uh, to, in, you know, for my money, I think this is a situation where the cure is more damaging than the virus itself. Uh, I think the economics effect and the economic effects of this. Are going to be with us long after the coronavirus has gone away, um, and and you're certainly seeing that in the jobless numbers. And you just can't put uh, 26 million people back to work overnight. I mean, I think you're going to see a lot of businesses that have used this as an opportunity to sort of streamline their operations. And you know, I think it's folly to think that all 26 million people. Are going to get put back to work if the coronavirus went away overnight. I would agree. And, and so our, our three, three plus percent unemployment that we had before the coronavirus, you know, is going to be much higher on an ongoing basis, in my mind, once we're well past this. Do you agree with that statement, David?
3: I do. And uh, unfortunately, it's about time to put the plug in the jug. This has been a great show. My compliments to the to the chef or to the host, Chance, and uh, I thought it was very good, and uh, Jack was super, and your last guest was super. So, uh, And I think everybody, quite frankly, I learned a lot, and uh, that's what it's all about is uh, no matter how old you are, keep learning. And I, I agree with uh, your whole show, as a matter of fact. So thank you for doing it. Thank you for... Uh, being a part of the family and uh, we look forward to uh, next week and more business hours coming up
1: well thanks david thanks to our guest john neary jack christides once again you can find john at rightworkplace.com it's a it's a great cultural uh, cultural business model that he has thanks for being on
0: john thanks a lot guys i really appreciate it